Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is co-owner and CEO of the famed Westlake Studios, Al Mashera. But first of all, the music industry is getting better. If you remember, it wasn't that long ago where everybody was really crying the blues. There was no money. We pretty much leveled out in terms of what the budgets were going to be for projects and advances of people are getting paid and everyone is freaking out throughout the industry. And then we went for about 15 years and no one wanted to invest. Piracy was a big deal, of course. Well, everything has changed. The music industry grew by 8% last year and it's now about a $17 billion industry worldwide. Now that's far off from what it used to be at its peak in 1999, it was $27 billion, but boy, things are getting better, and they're getting better fast. Now, of that $17 billion, 41% comes from streaming. That in itself is pretty interesting because people had predicted that would never happen, and in fact, we're going to see a period where I think we're going to be at 70 80% of all the revenue in the industry is going to be around streaming. Now, of course, there's other things that are happening. Piracy is no longer much of a factor because it's so much easier to just stream and there are so many ways that you can get it for free. What's the point of downloading a file? That's pretty much over. And now the good thing is the people who were not paying for music at all are now paying $100 to $120 a year. So all that being said, most of the growth is coming from China, India, and Latin America. But again, America is still doing fine, and we have growth everywhere, and it's pretty good. In fact, Goldman Sachs has predicted that by the year 2030, this will be a $41 billion business. Now, again, just imagine that in 1999, we hit our peak at $27 billion, and now we're going to grow to 41, according to Goldman. Now, this all leads up to something. Because the music industry is healthy, all of a sudden... There's a lot of money from outside the industry that's pouring into it. This is coming from private equity, it's coming from corporate, it's coming from private money, and even pension funds. And where are they putting their money? They're putting it in publishing. Publishing has always been the place where people really developed wealth. For many, many years, it was something in the music business that few people understood, especially artists. So no one paid much attention to it while... Just a very few people got rich. Now everybody realizes how important song catalogs are, and they're paying hundreds of millions of dollars for them. Popular hit songs are super valuable, and they continue to make money. Even when you think that they're not going to make any more money, one may appear in a movie, a television commercial, maybe even a television show, and next thing you know, it's making money again. So that's why everybody wants to buy publishing and a catalog that has hits will command a premium. So it looks like the music industry is back in the good times again. And when we start to see money coming in from outside the industry, then we know that in fact things are heading in the right direction. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskycourses.com. 
hitmakersclub.com. Also, keep up to date with the latest tips and techniques with my new Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, when I mention artists like Elvis Costello, Cheap Trick, America, Ultravox, Robin Trower, Super Tramp, Gino Vanelli, and Jeff Beck, you don't usually think of Jeff Emmerich, but yet he was instrumental in so many of their big hits. When we think of Jeff, we connect him mostly to the Beatles, and it's true, he was one of the five original Beatle engineers. But Jeff, who passed last week, leaves us with a strong creative legacy. Yeah, he recorded some of the Beatles' best albums. Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, Abbey Road. He won four Grammys along the way. But it was interesting because he learned the EMI way. He came up in the era of going to work in a suit and a tie. And that's being an engineer. The studio boffins, the maintenance guys, walking around in lab coats. So he was restricted to what he could do. There was the EMI way to mic things. There was the EMI way to record things and mix things. But he broke all of those rules. Now, granted, he was able to because he had the Beatles behind him, and they were the biggest band, the biggest act in the world at the time. That being said, there are so many things that he did first that we do today. For instance, close micing drums. It never happened before Jeff. Usually there was one mic that was over the drums and sometimes one in front of the kick, but way in front, like two feet in front. And Jeff was one of the first to say, okay, let's bring those mics closer to the heads. And not only that, one of the first to begin miking individual drums and cymbals, something we don't even think about today, but yet that was really outside the box at the time. Here's another one, putting a mic inside the kick drum. Again, we don't think about that these days, but that's something that Jeff started. And the interesting thing is, for some of these things, he almost got fired. And if it weren't for the Beatles, and actually the Beatles were encouraging him to experiment, he might have been on the street, and he wouldn't have the legacy he has today. Another thing is close-miking guitar amps. Again, they're always mic from a foot or two feet away, and that may be a good way still today, but the fact of the matter is, the Beatles wanted a certain sound, and Jeff got it by miking the guitar amps up close. Flanging, reverse tape, using a lot of compression, intentionally overloading pieces of gear. Those things all came from Jeff Emmerich. Probably my favorite thing, though, is using a speaker as a microphone. Now, again, this is something that we almost do all the time today, using a speaker in front of a kick drum for a sub-kick mic. But... Jeff was the first one to do that. He did it on Paul McCartney's bass because they wanted to get more low end. And Ken Scott told me a story that, in fact, everybody at Abbey Road was really enthralled with the sound of Motown and how they got their low end. And they tried and tried and tried to get the same thing, and they never could. So one of the things Jeff did was try, actually it was a speaker cabinet, used as a microphone to mic Paul McCartney's bass. Jeff was always really kind to me. And I worked with him a few times, mostly interviewing him, or there was a couple shows that I produced that he was part of, and he was always a really nice guy and someone that remembered me all the time, and I was always shocked when he did. The one thing that really sticks out in my mind, we were at a San Francisco AES convention, and I was walking down the street in between my hotel 
and the convention center, and I saw Jeff walking the other way, and he reached out first to say hello, and I was totally shocked. It was like, wow, you remember me. So Jeff was always like that. He was a really kind, sweet person. People would ask him questions, and he couldn't always remember what he had done way back when. And I always thought that was because he's so in the moment, and he's so good at what he's doing right now, that things in the past didn't really matter so much to him. He remembered the big picture, but not a lot of details. But, you know, things that are 40 and 50 years old, not many people remember details anyway. I can't remember what I ate for breakfast. So that just goes to show you that our memories will play tricks on us. And Jeff was always pretty honest about that. So all that being said, all I can say is, Jeff, you left us with a treasure trove of wonderful recordings and also some wonderful recording techniques that are going to live on for a really long time. My guest today is Al Mashera, who started off engineering in Miami before moving back to his home city of New York, where he stepped into the middle of the hip-hop revolution as the main engineer for salt and Pepper. Eventually, Al made his way to Los Angeles, where he worked for Radio and Records magazine before signing on as an owner and CEO of the famed Westlake Studios. The studio is noted for hosting an elite clientele, including Michael Jackson, Rihanna, Justin Timberlake, Madonna, Van Halen, Frank Ocean, Josh Groban, Justin Bieber, Fifth Harmony, and many, many others. In the interview, we spoke about Al's unique background, some history of Westlake, including the Michael Jackson years, and the studio he used for his big hits Off the Wall, Thriller, and Bad, the Westlake way of doing things, and Westlake's Create Music Academy with his innovative approach for teaching recording. We spoke live from the studio in West Hollywood. Uh, Let's go back to the beginning. I want to find out more about your background. So how did you get in this crazy business? Um, Well, I... um Going way back, we'll go way back. Um, I, I I grew up in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, right? Okay. Um, really didn't have any connection or links to the music business at all. My family all came from uh, worker, you know, a blue collar background, um, carpenters, electricians. Um, my father was a mechanic and a, an air conditioning technician. So um, so my my passion for music really just started in my bedroom listening. My father, uh, around 12 years old, um, bought me a stereo component system that, you know, had the, the tuner and the, and the 8-track and the, the, the phono uh, all separate, cassette deck. And um, I would just listen to music and listen to music over and over and over. And just listening through headphones, and I was just listening to... Uh, the amazing effects and um, mixes and just was super curious on how that was done. So after high school, um, was kind of moving in the direction of my family, you know, and, and opened up a, a home remodeling business with my brother-in-law and uh, was doing well for, for a few months. And then just decided I just saw an ad on TV um, that was advertising a... Uh, um, an audio and video school in Miami Beach that um, that an industry vet uh, named Mert Paul um, opened up in, in, in Miami Beach. So um, I gave a call and within a week my car was packed and I was on, my, on the road to, to Miami. Shut everything down, 
and, um, and, and then went to, went to school and started learning um, audio and video production. And then, um, you know, a lot of what my, my path, my journey through the industry has, has been a lot, you know, a lot of passion, a lot of hard work, but most importantly, a lot of luck. I've had, I've had some, some really lucky um, things that have happened. So about halfway through my, my year of courses, um, I had my car, like I said, I packed my car up and went, and went down. Um, a friend of mine that I was taking class with um, from Connecticut, uh, I didn't know him prior to, to school, but we became friends. He was from Connecticut. Um, he, he was sitting in the office where uh, the, you know, the councils will place people in internships and everything. So, so he, was, um, he was with her. I popped my head in to say hello. And, um, and she had said to, she said to me, um, Juliana, she said, uh, oh, you have a car, right? And I said, yeah, I have a car. Uh, can you take, can you drive him to, uh, an interview at a studio to be an intern? And I said, sure, of course I'll, I'll, I'll drive him. And, um, so I drove him, I was sitting in the lobby. It was this, the name of the studio was called Studio Center down in Miami. And so I, um, so I drove him, uh, sitting in the lobby waiting for him. And he was in an interview. He was probably in there for 20, 30 minutes. And when they came out, um, you know, I was reading a magazine. I put the magazine down and I stood up and I said hello to the, the studio manager that was interviewing him. And he asked me, he said, uh, do, do you guys go to school together? And, and we said, yeah. So he's like, do you want an internship too? And I said, yeah, of course, I'd love one. So of course, our first, you know, first few days was cleaning, you know, Windexing gold records and platinum records and cleaning toilets and everything. And uh, so my friend lasted, you know, maybe three days. Um, and I, and I wound up staying, I wound up, you know, cause that's really what I wanted to do. And then it was just a perfect opportunity because they had, um, they had a studio on the east side of uh, Miami and they, they had just bought a building on the west side um, that was an SSL room that was that went uh, bankrupt. Uh, business went bankrupt, uh, and so they bought it, bought the building, bought the whole studio, and they were um, they didn't have the clients yet. So th so I got handed basically a, a set of keys to a studio, um, and I you know just was there as many hours as I can possibly stay awake. So um, so I just really got you know uh, a ton of learning in while I was going to school. So my, my education was not only during class time, but also um, when, when class ended, I was, you know, I would, I'd be in the studio as, as, as many, many hours as I could stay awake. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. That's a good break. It's a good, yeah. Yeah, and then, I mean, and then it's just, it just you know, one thing led to another. And, you know, through, through my career, I've just, you know, I've, I've worked hard. I've been able to be, when opportunity comes you, you just you know the to me my in my opinion the key is to to be ready for it yeah you know an opportunity we don't control right I, I didn't control that the fact that i got that internship but yeah. but i was ready for it yeah you know and 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 through your life you just have to you, you know when opportunity is there you know you, your most important thing is to recognize it and then be ready 
Yeah. And, you know, and um, because you don't know when it comes again. Yeah. You don't control it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it may not come around again. That's right. That's right. It, t- it might, might take its time. Yeah. <laughs> so what was your first professional job then? When I was in Miami, I was going to school. I actually was a, uh, my first paid job was a roadie for the Rolling Stones when they came to Miami. We, uh, we, all, got a, we all got the notice that they were looking for people to help build um, the, the Steel Wheels stage. Um, so that was my first, uh, that was my first paid. Um, that's gig. cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. How about the studio? Studio, um, was with, um, I was, I was a, uh, I went from intern to assistant really quickly. Um, and I was an assistant engineer. And then what happened was, um, an engineer couldn't show up. And we were in with uh, a group, uh, a producer that was producing for a group called Expose. And um, his name was Frank Diaz. And um, he just said, you know, do you you know how to do this? And I was like, "Uh, yeah. And I, you know, of course I was, you know, sweating and moving quickly. Uh, But but I got through it, you know, and I settled in. And, um, you know, one day just, it, it worked out great. And next, you know, one day turns into two days and, and, and that was, that was kind of my, my official launch into, into, into working. Okay. So you're working in Miami. How did you get out to California? And I think the interesting thing here is it's very easy to settle into a gig wherever you're at. Mm -hmm. And Miami's a nice place to live. It's a, no, it's beautiful. It's a fine place. So it would be pretty hard to maybe pull yourself away from that and go someplace else. What, right. How did that work for you? So I, I really liked, I liked working in Miami. So I was done with school. I, I, I was working at the studio. I was, I was doing well, but I had been there about a year. Um, summer was coming around again. And the, the summer before was just so humid. And I'm from New York. Now it's humid there, but it's nothing like the humidity in Miami. Yeah. So summer was coming around again. Um, you know, I'd been there uh, about a year, a year and a half, um, and and I was just getting to the point where I was just like, I, I just don't want to deal with another summer. Um, and all my family and friends and everybody are in New York, so um, I just decided to go back, packed up, went back, um, staying with a friend for a while in the city, in, 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 uh, in the city area. Mm-hmm. And what I did was I just printed out as many resumes as I could carry and, and just walked around Manhattan and any place I could find, went through a directory and found all the studios and just went and called and, and dropped off resumes. Um, and I got three bites. So one was, uh, uh, two were in Manhattan, one was in Long Island City which is Queens. Yeah, yeah. So because of, you know, being tight on money and I had my car, I could, I could literally drive into Long Island City and park and be right there at the studio. Yeah. And the name of the studio was called Power Play. And at the time, it was a, um, it was a really uh, huge hip-hop studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, Eric B. and Rakim... KRS-One, Nas, um, you know, Salt and Pepper, 
um, Kid and Play, um, EPMD, all, all of the of the you know early hip hop. It's happening in Queens. Was yeah. happening right. Yeah. So it was right there, and you know it was something that was was appealing to me, and I um, I, I I interviewed and got uh, had to take a you know step back from being an, uh, a young engineer to to assisting again. So I assisted for a while and um, kind of worked my way up through the ranks. Okay, so you're working at Power Play and you're working on some good projects. Still, you're yep. in New York. Yep. You're not here. Yep. So I, I so with with um, with that opportunity at Power Play, um, I got I was still super early in in my career. I was um, bouncing between assistant engineering and engineering and I got the opportunity I was assisting for a group um called um Delight oh, sure. and they were doing a remix of one of their songs off that big of the big record that yeah. they were that they had the first record and um it was like a two and a half or three day session and it was one of the situ one of those situations where we got we got out and everybody you know we're just gonna go home and probably sleep for a day, and I just had taken a shower and gotten into bed and my phone rang and um, it was the studio asking if I could do a session um, with uh, uh, a, a producer named Herbie Lovebug, which was Salt and Pepper's producer. Yeah. So I you know I I really wanted to work with him and we had worked together once before and, and enjoyed it, but. Um, I just couldn't do it. I was just so tired. So I said, you know, see if you can find somebody else, and I'll uh, I'm, I, I need to sleep a little bit. Um, if you can't, call me back in a few hours, and, and I'll 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 get up and I'll come in. So um, so a few hours later, get another phone call, and he's like, they said, you know, the the, the manager said, um, well, he'll he'll hang, he'll wait if 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 you can if you can come in. So I did. I got up, took another shower, got dressed, went in, and um, and that ha that project happened to be a remix for um, "Let's Talk About Sex" mm. um, for Salt and Pepper. And so that was our first time working together. And you know, again, one day turned into two days, turned into a you know a week and a month and a year. And I was with them probably for about a good part of ten years. We went on tour together. Um, I was on the road with them doing audio. I was doing production, uh, TV production with them. Um, so I was kind of doing all that through the nineties. And then, um, and then it just got, I, I, you know, in 96, I had gotten married. Um, we had, we had all been working and moving around a lot early in our twenties. So we kind of uh, we were looking for a little bit of a of um of a break, so to speak, and that's how we wound up. That's how I wound up out here. Is um, in in '99, things were starting to settle down a bit, and with 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 uh, the group and and everything we were doing. So um, we had just come off a tour, and I just said, you know, it's a great opportunity to come out. To I always loved always. Whenever I got the opportunity to work out here, we'd, we'd come out and the weather was always amazing. So I so I basically opportunity came up to where we had a little bit of a break, didn't see anything in the in the near future happening. 
So decided to, my wife and I decided to, to pick up and, and move out. And, that, and that's, that's how we wound up in California. It's been, that's been since 99. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's been a while. Well, yeah, welcome to the club. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> Everybody, I hear that story over and over. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so when you came out here, what did you do for work? So at first, my plan was, is that I was, was going to come out here and I was going to take six months to a year off. And I was just going to relax a bit. And um, when I first, we first landed here, we didn't even unpack the house. And a friend of mine who was living here, he had said, um, a friend of his who was a producer was mixing a song with, uh, with Bone Thugs and Harmony. And they needed a mix really quickly for, um, for it was a, the record was for a movie soundtrack for Friday, next Friday. Mm -hmm. So, um, at first I had turned it down and then um, basically got talked into doing it. Hey, just as a quick favor, just do one. And it was over at Studio 56, which was down Santa Monica. Oh, yeah. Really cool studio. Yeah. It's, not, it's not no longer there, but it was, it was an awesome studio. So I, did the, I, I went in and I did the, the one song and we, um, that, we, we handed in the mix and I got a call back and said, the the song that you mix they really like the sound the sonics the sonics of it they really sounded um nice and full to them um i mixed it all analog and analog tape and everything so um they wanted me to mix a few songs on the album pick pick four of the singles that they, th they thought were going to be the singles or four or six and so i so i mixed i think four to six songs on on that album so that was it. So I so that was my plan. I was gonna just do that as a favor, and then I wasn't gonna. I was gonna kind of just chill out. And then um, when I was working with Salt and Pepper, we were on Island. Uh, we were on uh, Polygram, mm -hmm. which which also had Island. And um, one of the uh, one of the heads of promotion, his name was Sky Daniels. Uh, he started. He came out here and he started working for a company called Radio and Records. So um, a, a common, uh, a mutual friend of ours said he, he was looking for, he was starting a new digital project for Radio and Records. Radio and Records is a magazine, yeah, a yeah. newspaper, charts, you know, radio charts. And the, the company wanted to get into uh, the digital domain. They were m more, you know, they were at the time just print. So um, they were looking to, to, to enter into the digital market and they had... Um, a project called Music Meeting, which was um, basically digitizing all the releases to radio and sending them to the radio stations digitally. Mm -hmm. Now, this was way before any of that stuff was even happening. Yeah. Um, and it was going to cut down, it was going to be immediate delivery, um, it was going to cut down on shipping costs, it was going to cut down on manufacturing costs. So, um, she knew I was out here, um, and she basically introduced us. She introduced Sky and myself, um, and so I took a so I took a position um, within about six months of being here. I took a position with Radio and Records as um, their. I uh, started off as just their encoding manager. I was going to deal with all the audio um, that was going to be digitized. Um, and then, you know, it was just, it was one of, it, it, even though they were a very established company, this project was more of a startup 
So there was really no structure to it. So, so you know, just needing uh, a, a way to place orders and a way to um, uh, invoice and all of that, it just naturally turned into, um, uh, I, I needed, we needed to build all that. So I just started, you know, it was, it was an interesting project. It was something that was outside of my comfort zone with being in the studio and um, I needed a little break from making records and being in the studio. So this was a really, um, really great opportunity um, to be in an office and to, um, and to really start to dig in on the business side versus the creative side. Yeah. And that's, and that, so, I, so I did that for, um, for about nine years. How did your association with Westlake come about? So in, um, so now, so that, so I started with uh, Radio and Records in 2000. In about, it, my, my son was born 2003. Mm-hmm. And um, around that time, I was starting to get an itch to get back in the studio. So even my office at, at, at the at, at Radio and Records had uh, what we'd call a little home studio in it right now. You know, it was, yeah. it was mostly analog, but, but it was, um, but, but it was a small place where, where I could, where I could do things. Um, so around the time 2003, when my son was born, I had a, I had a smaller home studio at home, um, which then turned into the nursery. And I was looking for a, um, a place where I can just come and write and work through, through a friend, Steve Resnick, um, who, who, who I worked with, um, a series of of happenstance of of lunches, which was to um, you know uh, him he invited me to a lunch to meet uh, one gentleman, the the gentleman who uh, who created the uh, Hot 100 chart and billboard, mm. and um, during that meeting, uh, Mark Mazzetti was there, a uh, guy a uh, guy that they worked with at A and M. Uh, Mark had an artist he was working with and um, a second lunch happened. He's like, hey, you, you, I want you to meet this artist. So, so, so we had lunch. During that lunch, I was telling, I was telling the artist that you know, I'm looking for a, a little room around town that I can find that can write. The artist knew Steve Burdick, which is my, my business partner at Westlake. And he's like, you know, my friend owns, my friend manages Westlake. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. And I had, I really didn't have much knowledge of the studio at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like, you should meet him. Let's, let's go, ha- let's, I'll set up a lunch and you can meet him and see if, see if it works for you. So I, so I agreed to it. And then right before the meeting, I was about to cancel it cause, cause I looked on the map and I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at Westlake and I'm thinking that's pretty far out. <laughs> um, and I, and I didn't want to make the, 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 the trip, but, but I kind of forced myself um, and I said, you know, something, something good will come from it. And, um, I, you know, I forced myself to, to go to the lunch and, uh, Steve and I met and he offered me one of the offices upstairs that were, um, where the, the sales group used to be in the, in the, uh, above the studios. They, they had downsized a bit on the, on the set, on, on the sale in the sales group. So um, some, some of those offices were open. He's like, you know, I was looking for something to do with them. I'm not sure what to do with them. So, so, I, so I went in and I rented an office and I, and I put a little studio in there and a little writing room. And um, 
just being in the building, in you know, in the environment, um, we, we we became friends and we were talking. And um, he he one day he came and said, you know, do you know any investors for the studio? Uh, I want to buy it. Um, so I have this business plan. If you can look it over, that would be great. So I looked it over, and at the time I felt you know studios were closing, you know one one a week. A big studio was closing every week yeah. or every month, um, and um, I, the the way the the way the plan had writ- was written, it was it was basically looking for investment money, and then they then the, then they were going to pay that investment money back um, to the investors, but it didn't it didn't seem to be that kind of environment for it. So him and I discussed it and, and I was looking for a place to, to, to work, you know? And so if I, I would have been spending money on studio anyway, um, to, to be doing, to, to, to be, uh, developing artists. So, um, what we did was we got together and we decided, you know, to buy the place and we were going to run it and we, we ran it really, really, you know, bare bones for, for a while until, until we could kind of, uh, get our feet under us. Um, but, but that's what we did. We, we know we bought it in 2004 and you know, and here we are, yeah, here we are. Well, okay. That being said, commercial studios, they are dying or actually I think that's sort of plateaued mm-hmm. and the ones that remain seem to be busy. That being said, the nature of the clients are different these days. So the budgets aren't quite what they were unless you have the a, super A-list. And the, the sessions aren't the month-long, year-long that they were once upon a time. Is that what you find? Do you find that the sessions, the booking is shorter than, than it used I to be? I think the booking is shorter, um, for sure. Um, I don't think there's a lack of, of budget. I think, I think the industry kind of has reinvented itself a bit. Um, and... One of the things that we we um, we realize is that we you know when we were buying Westlake, it wasn't necessary. We weren't just buying um, we were we were buying uh, a history yeah. that came with it, um, and we're very proud of that, and um, we're we we're very cautious of that. We're, we we protect it um, on a daily basis. So um, with that being said, is we we understand the legacy that came before us and we're, we're, we're super, uh, we're, we're privileged to be able to continue that. Well, the um, biggest one being Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson, right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and a history, you know, just a, a history of incredible artists that have come through the doors. Yeah. Um, Michael Jackson being probably the, the biggest and, and the, the most well-known had, had done a lot of work um, at Westlake in the early days with, um, with Off the Wall and Thriller and Bad. Um, so, so having that legacy, um, and Steve in particular, Steve, um, little background on Steve is he, he came to Westlake in 87 as a, um, as basically a runner. Um, he pretty much invented his own job as a detailer and he, he, he'd go in and he'd detail the studios. So, uh, his eye for detail, um, and perfection is is like none none I've ever seen, yeah. um, and he's he's really incredible that way, um, and he and he's very proud of the place. You know, he's he's he he's been here for a very long time, 
and um, and us together as partners um, just work. You know, we we're not um, we don't have um, a huge contract that that we had to sign. It was it was one of those uh, more of a handshake deal. Mm -hmm. um, that was kind of our deal with Glenn Phoenix, who was who was the previous owner. Um, it was a handshake. You know, a, a, a quick um, contract and agreement was in place. But for the most part, everything was handshake and um, the way they the way they would do business. And and so with us being a, having the privilege of of continuing the legacy of Westlake. Um, we're very careful of the brand. We're very careful of um, making sure that uh, the studio stays at a certain standard. Um, we have the, um, you know, the the, the the mentality of, you know, we, we really want it to be like a uh, Four Seasons hotel. When you walk in, you're you're getting that experience of knowing that you're, you know, we're here to serve you. And the environment is built that way so that um, the creative element of you being in the building happens. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, not, it's not a tense experience. It's not something that you feel like it, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, uh, um, it's a labor to be there. You mentioned detailing before, and now it dawns on me. As we're walking through and you're giving me the tour, there was something that was different, and especially in the lounges. Mm -hmm. And that's what it was. Mm -hmm. It's the detail. There are small things that make a difference. I can't put my finger on yeah. them, but I know they're there. Well, you felt you felt at home. Yes. Right? Oh, absolutely. Felt, it's very comfortable. I mean, you're talking about Four Seasons. Yes, it, it's sort of that experience, but without the, uh, the glam. Right, yeah. right. It's somewhere between, you know, you, when I say Four Seasons, I'm more talking about the, the the service yeah you know when you when you when you walk in there you know there's uh you're, you're greeted w by reception um there's cookies um homemade you know cookies that, that that we make in 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 house um there there's that experience that you get where you feel like okay um i've just shut the door on the world and i'm i'm going to be able to create some really incredible stuff now yeah um and um, that's more of the, the feel that I'm talking about. Um, the, the aesthetics of the place um, it just kind of happened um, gradually um, through the years. But what we try to do is we try to create an environment where it's, it, it's not, like you said, you used the word glam. That's a, that's a great word. It's, it's not to a point where you feel like it, it's too stuffy or too high end that I can't, um, I can't relax here. Yeah. I, I want it to feel more like I'm sitting in my living room, really, really relaxed at home. When you walk in, if you feel like you're at home and you feel like this is a really cozy environment, then, then we, did, we did our job. You know, let's face it, when you get to this level of studios, the actual studio experience is roughly the same control rooms mm -hmm. the gear the acoustics on in in the tracking room might be a little different but nonetheless it's roughly the same so the differentiator is then in the service and it's in the extras of the private rooms the lounges the things like that you're right you go into certain places and it's overdone where it just feels like well 
I don't think I need real crystal glasses here right, <laughs> you right. know, to enjoy myself or to make me feel comfortable. But but I would say, you know, I, what I'd say about that is I think um, I think that those those types of studios or those types of places um, they serve they serve a certain type of client. Yeah, that's and true. some might want that, yeah. and, and and they they would feel. Um, they they'd feel out of place if they didn't have it. Yeah. Um, but the the funny thing is is that you know I always joke about Westlake. It's such a such a cool environment. Um, I love it. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a fan of it myself. Um, being the owner, I'm I'm also a fan because at any given time, you you have a mixture of so many different types of artists that come through the doors. Yeah. Um, we do primarily. Uh, pop and hip hop and R and B, um, but at any given time, you know, uh, one I, I always tell a story. It's, it, we have a, a ping pong table, an infamous ping pong table that that we used to set up um, in the lobby area, in the back lobby, and we clear all the furniture out, and um, and we we'd have the uh, ping pong table set up. So well, it it gets into some really competitive ping pong games yeah and one day i walk in the door and i i had to you know pinch myself and see if i was a dream I'm, I'm i walk in the door and michael bolton and snoop dogg are playing ping pong <laughs> in 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 the lobby area yeah and and it, it was it wasn't a casual game it was a it was a game of like you know this this was this is for this is for all the marbles yeah yeah um so um so it's kind of a funny, it's kind of a, a, a really funny and warm and inclusive environment. You know, it's, there isn't, there isn't, um, we're, we're very careful not to have the place become a party, um, environment. Um, obviously you go in the studio, you want to relax, you want to have fun. That's not, that, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about where you, where you'd get to a point where you'd go, I, I just don't want to book Westlake because it's, because it's too it's too distracting. There's too many oh, things going on. the entourages and all. Yeah, right, yeah, right. right. So yeah. so we're careful. We're um, we keep that we keep that um, pretty locked down. I used to do a lot of work at A and M, which is now Henson. Yeah, and that was a wonderful environment as well. It was very casual, and I can remember they had a game room in the back, and they had the old pinball machines. Oh, and yeah. I, I can remember playing and, and a tap on the shoulder saying, can I play with you? And it'd be Joni Mitchell. Uh -huh, wow. Or, you know, you'd go for a cup of coffee and it'd be Lionel Richie and Jocko Pastorius. And, yeah. and it was it was very homey because it was like there was, all the studios were close together. And, right. You know, you talk to every engineer that used to work in that environment that doesn't anymore, and that's the one thing they all lament and they all want to go back yeah. to. Yep. and that's what you have here, and, and it's 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 very much like that. The kitchen area where we where we walk through, um, a lot of times you're 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 seeing the clients kind of gathering in the kitchen. They meet and they're like, "Oh, you need to listen to this." Yeah, and they and they, and one client goes into another client's room, and before you know it, you know, six months later, they have a record together. Yeah, um, so it's it's one of those environments where. Um, where we really we really encourage that you know it's 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 uh yeah it's, it's one of the special special parts of Westlake okay now that being said you do have some small rooms that you showed me which mm -hmm. are they really sound good from what I could tell just yeah. walking through yeah. and they're they're very comfortable 
And that seems to be, in a way, the way of the future for many studios, right. where there's a big studio and there's a lot of smaller, I won't say ancillary rooms, but smaller studios to for that client that uh, right. doesn't need a big studio or want it. Right. We, we um, like I was telling you when we were walking, you know, if, if we could, we have two smaller production rooms. Mm. If, if we could multiply those and, and, um, and have 10 of those, we, we'd keep them full. I mm. mean, that's, that's how valuable those rooms are to us. We love those, people love those rooms. They're comfortable. Um, they can get everything they need done in it. They sound really good. Um, so, um, and, and they're, they're per square inch of our per square foot they they really are uh more valuable to to a studio owner um because then you know you're not sitting with a, a huge live room that's not being utilized and you know for what you're getting for uh for what we get for a production room versus the larger studios um th- those rooms per square foot turn out to be more valuable to yeah. us yeah i'm sure i'm sure okay well speaking of the larger rooms Last week, we were down in Beverly Boulevard to the other complex that you have there mm-hmm. in the, I guess, the Studio A, right? With Studio A and where B, Mike, yeah. Michael Jackson yeah. did Thriller. Thriller, and uh, there's a certain mojo in there for sure. You walk in and there, you, you can feel it. It's, it's very cool. But that being said, in this facility, which room is, is that A as well? Which one? The, the, here? Yeah. Uh, the studio D. Okay, it's D. And what's very interesting there is the stage. Mm-hmm. Now, I can understand how Michael would utilize that. Mm-hmm. And I can always remember Bruce telling me about how Michael would dance around when they're doing yep. vocals. How do artists today, because <laughs> they're not Michael, mm-hmm. how do they deal with that? What do they use it for? Um, I, I, I won't say that you know it, it, gets, it, gets, it's, it gets utilized as much uh, like it used to back with Michael being in the room. Um, but right now we'll, we'll use it for, um, for an ISO booth. Um, we use it, obviously you saw the piano at the time, the piano was up on the stage in there. Um, so, so it's a great ISO booth for the piano. Um, we, we have a ramp, the piano comes down off the stage. It can go into the, into the main room. And, um, we, uh, we could set up a production station up there mm-hmm. for um, if somebody's working in the studio um, and and they have a producer that um, that needs a little private area. We can close the door. We can close the sliding doors and, and use that as an ISO booth now. Yeah. But that room in particular has so many little nooks and, and lounges. Um, it it it's usually the last one to be used as the production room. We um, there's a there's a room upstairs. Um, that we call the monkey room, um, where Michael used to keep bubbles. It was his, it was his private lounge. Um, that that's used as a as a private production uh, setup a lot of times. Um, the back lounge, where it used to be Quincy's lounge, right behind the studio, they'll use as a production uh, setup um, more often than not. Sure. Um, so there's there's so many little little rooms that can be used before that. Uh, the stage, unfortunately. Um, gets used a lot less. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. But it's so unique. I mean, you don't see it, yeah. something like that yeah. anywhere. Let's talk about the Create Music Academy because that's also unique, and it's unique because there, we were talking before. There's so many 
different schools that are teaching recording. I think mm -hmm. every community college even is, you mm -hmm. know, has a studio. What makes that different? What makes Create Music Academy different? Good question. Um, well, just in just on the just in the in the uh, the very DNA of Create. Uh, what what we wanted to do here was not start and build another engineering course. We felt like there were plenty of plenty of those out there. There was plenty of courses that taught engineering, and um, unfortunately, what we what we kind of feel and we see. In, in, in the environment that we're, where we're in right now is that there's a lot of uh, courses out there teaching engineering on large format consoles, right? And um, what, what, we, what we kind of feel is that people are going to those courses not necessarily to become a recording engineer. A lot of people are going to to figure out how to record either themselves or their friends or bands or, or, or other artists better than they were before. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're looking to learn how, how do I do this on a, on a, and, and make it sound professional, make it sound good. Um, so so going, going to school for a year and spending about forty thousand dollars or more to, to do that, um, it, it's it's a cycle that we kind of we we're not trying to break it. If if that's the goal, if that's what somebody wants to do, then then that might be their path to, to do it. But for us, we felt like um, we see a lot of young men and women come out of school and they apply for internships at at Westlake. Now the a very few get in the door um, to, to be to get the opportunity to become a, an intern in, in a in a large studio. You have to have good grade. You know, you have to have good grades. You have to have the you know a certain personality. You have to you know like you have to interview well. Um, so not everybody gets that opportunity. So, but then when when you do when you do get the opportunity, you become an intern an intern at a, at a studio. Um, you're your student loans kick in. You're 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 living in LA. Um, you're um, you're you're interning, so you're really not you're not making any money. Um, in, in in at least with us, it's for three months, right? We intern mm -hmm. for three months, and then um, it, we we really get to see who who that person is, and um, we uh, we try to keep. Uh, if opportunity is there, and we have a we have a um, a space in in our our team, we we try to keep that person on, um, and then we uh, then they become a runner, mm -hmm. and they're a runner with us for probably a year and a half, two years, mm. right? Um, so that whole cycle of 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 student loans and living in LA and and you know just being a, a tough environment, we just felt like that whole business model was was not something we wanted to duplicate. Mm -hmm. So what we did was um, we, we, took, we created curriculum that mimicked what we, do, what we do on a daily basis in the recording studio at Westlake. 
So we've took, we took all of those years of experience um, from, and we've created curriculum that takes you from the beginning of uh, writing a song all the way through to mixing and mastering. Uh, we, and we go through synthesizers, we go through the different DAWs, um, we go through um, how, how you would put together your own studio at home, um, what, what to focus on, what not to focus on, um, how to mix, signal flow. Um, and we also take them into the studio, in their larger rooms and we, and we introduce them after we've, after we've given them a good background of how you do everything towards the end of the, of, of the last course, we take them into the, um, into the large room and we, we do a mixing course, an analog mixing course, and we explain all of the things that we've taught digital about digital recording. This is how it began, right? This is the origin of it. And they get to understand, you know, they were taught signal flow and all that. So they, they actually get to see it, touch it, experience it so that it kind of really sinks in and, and, it, um, and they understand it really well. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, up until now, it's been the other way around where it went from, well, if you know the large format console signal flow and then you can come back into the box, this makes more sense, especially for the way things are today, where you learn what's in the box first, then experience right. the, the large format analog world because you may not get there, so it might be irrelevant to you. But I think actually now it's easier to translate that way than it was in the past. I believe, I believe so. Yeah. Right. And, and I mean, when we teach, when we teach our, our, in our curriculum and we're teaching them how to work digitally, um, we're, we're also, the important thing there is we're teaching them a really good, we're giving them a really good foundation mm-hmm. and great building blocks to be able to start somewhere with the right techniques mm-hmm. and then be able to grow as they grow as producers or artists or songwriters. They are growing with the right building techniques so that if they do get the opportunity to um, to get into a larger room and become uh, get into a professional um, recording environment with producers or other producers or other writers or other artists, they um, they don't feel like they're out of place. They feel they 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 have they've experienced everything that we do at Westlake yeah. in in the in the in these courses. It's unusual for a studio, even a studio an A-list studio like Westlake to have an adjunct school. It's, mm-hmm. it's extremely unusual. It makes a lot of sense in that there's a way to do things that works. You mm-hmm. guys know what it is, mm-hmm. so let's pass it on. So that certainly makes a lot of sense. That being said, you have a very low-key presence. Mm-hmm. I don't see a lot of adverts at all. Mm-hmm. So you must be doing this word of mouth um, a lot of it's, some of it's word of mouth. Um, we, um, we, we go to, um, a few conventions throughout the year. Mm-hmm. You go to ASCAP. Um, and one of the first conventions we started at was, was at Taxi. Yeah. Um, when we first opened the doors, it was just timing wise, um, we were going to open our doors, uh, beginning of 2015. 
um, and Taxi was was happening, I, I believe, in like November of 2014. So that was really our first um, <clears throat> out the door. You know, we're 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 about to be open. Yeah. Um, so that was a great experience for us because there's a lot of uh, taxi members that were looking for this niche for this situation where it's like I I'm kind of doing it at home and, and I kind of self-taught but I would really learn I would really love how to uh, I really love to learn how to do it um, the way the professionals are doing it and the most efficient way especially right if there's not a long-term commitment to a school which right right this is not yeah. a this is not a year course it's yeah. it's um you know it's basically each course is 15 hours of lecture yeah plus time in the lab in the studio um so we offer four courses it's 60 hours so if you're if if you take it if you take the classes when we offer it full time uh each course is five days which is a week right so our four courses you're done with lecture in four weeks, mm-hmm. plus an extra week to finish up your projects. So from start to finish, you're done, you're in and out the door in five weeks. Um, it, in our part-time courses, it's the same material, and just instead of, you know, we, we, we realize that people might not be able to come five days a week, so we offer at night, two days a week. So, it's, so each course would take um, basically two and a half weeks, Right. Yeah. Uh, two two nights a week, and um, you're in and out the door in ten weeks. That's brilliant. And uh, and and it really it really has um, been successful for us, um, in the in the sense that you know what we what we're also doing in 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 create is we're building community. So um, when I say in and out the door, um, that's that's your coursework, but a lot of students that have come through, student producers that have come through, um, they, they continue to come back. You know, they're always here, they're always booking the studio, they're coming in, they're, um, they're asking, you know, I just, I just mixed uh, this, this new record, what do you think? They're asking for it. So we're always here, our doors are always open, we're, you know, we're looking to help. So not only um, are you here for the courses, but we're hoping that we're building a music community that, um, you know, when when you come back and you're working in the in the building, you might meet someone from a from a cohort that 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 just finished, yeah, and sure. and that magic kind of happens. Yeah. Oh, you know, you sing. Oh, great, I play the guitar, and you know, and then all of a sudden they're they're collaborating. You were going to tell me a story before, and I assume it was about a, a student. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, yeah. That's so. Uh, we had walked into Create's um, stu- uh, studio. And um, we were talking about how it's how it's built to be kind of like a home studio, mm-hmm. so that you can. So when we teach, we're teaching everyone not how to make a record in a large on a large format console, but how to do it at home, and then have that translate into a large format console into a large format studio. So you had told me a story about um, about Charlie Pu- uh, Puth yeah. um, and his home and his home. Uh, studio, how it was even smaller yeah. and less, probably less equipment than we have here. Yeah. And so I was telling you, there's an interesting story. So when when I was um, in New York at PowerPlay, uh, and we were we were ninety one 
we were going to start a uh, a new salt and pepper record and uh herbie was infamous for uh booking time and and um you know saying he's going to come at noon and, and not showing up until five or six or whatever so it was just you know, one of those environments. You know, now that I'm on the other end of it, great for a studio owner, yeah. uh, not so great for everybody trying to make a record. Yeah, right? yeah. So at one point he decided, um, let's see if we can put a studio together. Um, I have some equipment. I tried it once before. So uh, I have some equipment at my mother's, uh, in the back of my mother's house in, in the garage. So we, we basically, um, we converted the garage into a tracking studio and um uh it was a analog console in there i went down to nashville i bought a uh, studer uh 800 800 and uh we put it in there we built a vocal booth um in the corner of the of the of the of the uh garage and um that's where we built uh, we, we tracked and mixed um salt and pepper is very necessary um and you know, five or six million records later, yeah. um, you really don't, you know, you don't have to necessarily be in a, in a, yeah. in a, you know, paid, re, you know, large format recording studio. And mix, that, that's the key because a lot of times people will record in, in a home situation, mm -hmm. they'll get pretty good tracks, but it's the mixing that really makes a difference when it's all said and done. Well, the funny, the, the funny story about that is, um, so we, we tracked everything and then, um, it, the console was an old Soundcraft okay. console, and he he uh, and it had no automation at all. We tracked all the record, put some rough mixes together, and we handed them into um, into London Polygram at the time, and uh, so we got the approval to to go ahead and mix. So we then um, went and uh, went back into a uh, professional studio and started mixing. And, and as I'm handing the mixes in, uh, I'm, I'm getting calls from, from, from the label saying, uh, wh what happened to the, the other mixes? Why, how come, wh why, why they sound like this versus that? And I was like, well, those are just rough mixes. You know, these, these are finished mixes. No, we want to go back. We want that. We want it to sound like that. So I was like, well, there's no way. I was like, I can't mix in that room. I said, there's no automation. There's, there's nothing. And they said, we'll, we'll put everything on hold, put automation on the console, and we'll, we'll mix there. So literally, I had to take everything down for a few weeks. I got the tech in. We, we retrofitted a third, you know, an outside uh, automation package. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, mixing off of a, like little, a little bay of a little, uh, little uh, fader bay, um, and then trying to, you know, trying yeah. to make it all work. It was learning curve and trying to trying to make a record at the same time. It wow. was it was an interesting experience, but but we did it. You know, yeah, it, it yeah. worked out. Last question, L. What's the best piece of business advice that you've ever received from somebody, or maybe you learned along the way? Ooh, that is a very Interesting question. Best business advice. The best business advice is um, this: this industry is so small. It seems big, but it's so small. When you 
carry yourself professionally and ethically throughout your career. Um, I, you never know who's going to come back around uh, and you'll be working with down the line or you know, you'll, you'll catch up with again down the line. Um, so um, I learned that really early in my career and I, I have to say, you know, for the most part, I've been in the business um, 30 years, and I, you know, I have such great friends um, throughout those years, all the way going back from uh, when I, you know, when I interned uh, down in Miami. Um, I have a, an engineer that's out here in, in Los Angeles. His name is Ian Boxo. Uh, he, he's, you know, a great engineer and mixer. Um, we interned together. And you know we catch up all the time, and we you know we we enjoy uh, still being around one another uh, thirty years later. So um, so you you you'd be surprised on how many people you'll come in you'll come in contact again with if you're if you stay in the business for a while. Um, so it's always important to um, to work and uh, and live well and ethically. You know, mm -hmm. just just keep keep a high, high standards and um, treat people right. And I think it goes a long way. Sure does. Yeah. Very cool. Is there anything I missed that you want to talk about? No, I mean, the only, the only other thing that's interesting on, on our front right now that we're doing is um, we, um, we're kind of building a self-sustaining environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, with with Westlake being the the anchor, uh, the pillar of it, right? Um, we we created the music academy a few years back. Um, now our new project that we that we've we're kicking off this year um, and really going to be focused on next year is um, is freight train music publishing. So um, we feel like we have an environment with the studio and with Create, right? We have a, a we uh, in, in Create there there there's this you know we're we're seeing brand new talent all the time, yeah. fresh you know eager looking to work. Um, with 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 Westlake, we um, our clients um, we you know our artists. Uh, that that come through, uh, producers that come through, the labels, uh, the publishing companies. We're we're kind of in the middle of everybody, mm -hmm. right? So it only kind of makes sense um, that we start a uh, a publishing company of sorts to create catalog, create songs, so that when opportunity does come along, um, or clients are looking for songs, or um, you know, writers to write with them. Um, we we have those already in house. Yeah. Um, so that's that's our focus. We're we're converting some of our our rooms upstairs into writing rooms, mm -hmm. um, or actually have converted them, and um, and and we're we we've just signed a batch of four writers, and um, we're looking to expand, um, you know, throughout throughout next year, and and really get that off the ground. 
You can find out more about Westlake by going to westlakestudios.com, westlakestudios, all one word, dot com, and you can learn more about Create Music Academy by going to createmusicacademy.com. That's C-R-E, the number eight, and Music Academy, all one word, dot com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, or find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, and Google Podcasts. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.